addition to dog-eared, I have a show called Health Power. Now, I've been in health media for 24 years, radio, TV, and podcasts. And I really care about not just what I put in my body, but what I put on my body. So I am absolutely in love with One Earth Body Care. Now, I extend that to my pets. I'm very careful about what I feed them, and I'm very careful about what I put on them. So I was so excited to find out that One Earth Body Care also has pet shampoo bars, which are phenomenal. They're gentle with organic oatmeal to soothe skin. Their neutral pH matches your pet skin pH. Last 20 plus washes for large dogs and they're scented with pet-friendly essential oils. They also have a skin fix for pets, organic coconut, sunflower, and jojoba oils. It has calendula, which stimulates healing. It's great for hot spots, itchy patches, and their nose and paws. It's edible ingredients, safe to lick, and it's available with lavender, oil, or unscented. So I highly recommend you go to oneearthbodycare.com, click on pets, and get these for your pets. And while you're there, you can get wonderful things for your hair, your face, and body, and more. Again, oneearthbodycare.com. Does your dog do? Well, answering this question today is a fantastic Karen Fine, DVM. We're going to be talking about her New York Times bestselling memoir. And I'm just so excited for her because it's so amazing. The other family doctor, a veterinarian, explores what animals can teach us about love, life, and mortality. Dr. Karen Fine is a holistic veterinarian who writes about the human-animal bond, holistic veterinary medicine, pet loss, grief, and narrative medicine. She owned and operated her own house call practice, Fine Veterinary House Calls, for 25 years. Her New York Times bestselling memoir, The Other Family Doctor, a veterinarian explores what animals can teach us about love, life, and mortality, explores her experience as a pet owner and veterinarian. All right, Dr. Fine, does your dog do? So one of my dogs, especially, both of them do it a little bit, but one of them, especially when he's sleeping, he kind of goes like a Gumby dog and you can kind of pat him and kind of pick him up and he'll just go all limp on you and you can (laughs) snuggle with him. He just loves it. He's such a good cuddler. Oh my gosh. What kind of dog? So um, my two dogs, they're both rescues from Aruba. So I haven't been to Aruba, but there's a a network of rescues that uh, they take puppies, stray puppies, which will otherwise be euthanized, and Mm -hmm. they have them fostered on the East Coast. So people, and usually they're brought over on planes under the seat by people who are returning from vacation or whatever. So people could sign up to bring a puppy back with you if there are puppies that need to fly. They call it their freedom flight. Oh, that is so fantastic. I asked Karen ahead of time, Dr. Fine or Karen. She says she prefers Karen. Karen, when did your love of dogs begin? I have loved dogs for as long as I can remember. And to attest to that, I have a plate that I made in kindergarten. And they had this wonderful thing where we had a piece of paper and we could draw on it. And then it was made into a melamine plate. And I drew a dog sort of, I know it's a dog. It's, it's recognizable as a dog and it's attached by a leash to a girl. And, uh, you know, so she's walking the dog. Now I didn't have a dog. There is also, you can't really tell what it is, but there's a fire hydrant in the picture. And I just knew that fire hydrants went with dogs and I didn't quite know why, but there's a, there's a dog and a leash and a woman girl and the fire hydrant. So, um, that sort of shows that, that's what I was thinking about. I always have loved dogs. 
You know, it's so funny you said that because that's just daddy voice. That's just daddy. Um, hello, I'm still taping, but I'll, I'll edit this out. Anyway, oh my God, Karen, I haven't thought about this in years. When I was in third grade, I had to make this little little book of emotions. I'm happy when I'm sad when I'm, Ooh. and I just pictured I'm sad when, or it's sad when your pet dies. And I'm a, I was a terrible artist. I still am, but I drew a little girl sitting by a rug with a dog laying on it. Oh. I didn't have a dog, but I, I wanted a dog. And I understood like how sad I, I haven't wow. thought of that in years. I still have that somewhere, that little book. I love the way you start the book. You have a story about a feral cat who has a badly injured ingrown toenail and it's embedded into his paw. And you talk about throwing this netting over him and something pretty miraculous happens. <laughs> Tell us about this. It was really an incredible moment because he was a feral cat. So I mm. couldn't get near him, which was why I used the it's a fishing net. And another veterinarian had showed me the technique where you kind of trap them in the net and then you double wrap them. So they're kind of pinned under the netting. And it was one of those moments in house calls where I was just thinking, I don't know what I'm going to do next because <laughs> if I, I, I could see what the problem was, but I needed to trim his nail. And I thought, I don't have anesthetics with me. This cat's not going to let me do it. And he somehow he got a paw through the netting, the affected paw, and he stretched it out straight and held it still while I got my clippers and was able to trim the nail and then it was infected but then the people were able to give him antibiotics in his food so he was able to heal up it was just an amazing moment none of us could believe it yeah you know one of the things i love about your book is i love about how you talk about your opa and the influence he had on you in that trip talk to us right. about that and how that helped shaped your desire to be a veterinarian that was an incredible trip so i was 11 years old and i was visiting my family because my parents had grown up in South Africa. So mm -hmm. I went to visit relatives for the summer and my aunt and uncle and a small cousin who was four at the time took me on vacation with them. And their vacation was they drove to Kruger National Park and we spent about a week in the park, staying at different camps inside the park. So when you're in the park, and the park is about the size of Rhode Island, so it's just enormous. The only time you're allowed to get out of the car is when you're in one of these camp areas. So you really, it's the animal's territory. So it's kind of the opposite of the zoo. So you're really seeing the animals in their habitat. And you don't know what you're going to see next. And we saw zebras and giraffes and lions and elephants and monkeys. And it was it was just an incredible experience. It was like an out-of-body experience, really, for, a, for an animal-loving 11-year-old. It was incredible. Oh, I bet. And your opa was a doctor. And again, he really had a big influence on you. And talk, tell us a little bit about him. So he was a physician who did house calls as part of his practice. And he was really the old fashioned GP where he was a, you know, what they call now family practice, family practitioner. He treated people from, you know, birth to death. And, you know, anything more serious, they had to go to the to the hospital. And I think because they had fewer diagnostic tools in those days, physicians were very good at the physical exam and getting really the history and kind of figuring out the patient's story and what was going on. And he really felt that 
going into people's homes really helped him with that, especially because he really got to know the people. And then you can also see if there's a change in the home that can give you some information as well. And he was interested in psychiatry. So he would say if he went into the home and, you know, everything like the curtains were drawn, there wasn't much sunlight coming in or whatever, and things were, you know, it used to be tidy and now it was messy. Um, you know, he would think, oh, wow, they really, you know, are they depressed? What's going right. on? That that sort of thing. So he was really able to treat his patients better from this, you know, some of this information that maybe they wouldn't even say anything. Right. And it was so neat is that you were able to look at what he did and then do that with animals. And before we jump into your wonderful house call practice, this is something that it kind of blew my mind in two ways. It blew my mind that they did this and it blew my mind that I never thought about this. You write about your third curriculum. It involves something called a live or terminal surgery lab. First year, we dissected animals that were um, cadavers. Okay. And when when I did that, they were greyhounds that were off the track. And this was, um, this was the late 80s. And this was before a lot of the greyhound rescue programs were around. So these were dogs that were being youth, you know, being euthanized anyways. But in junior year, we had a terminal surgery lab. And so these were beagles that were, it's called purpose bred. So they were bred in labs for experiments or, you know, different, different things. And so each student was assigned to a dog and these dogs, we did um, surgery procedures on them. And then they were not, uh, they were euthanized on the table. Um, so they never woke up. So it wasn't painful for them, but they were they were euthanized. You know, they were healthy dogs. We had to examine them, I, I think, every day for maybe a week or so before the surgery, um, depending on who's, you know, so there were three of us in a surgery group. So it sort of depended on whose turn came first or whatever, but we had to examine these dogs. So we were trying to have a relationship with them. And in hindsight, that almost seems kind of extra cruel, (laughs) you know, that we had to interact with these dogs. And, you know, I mean, I don't think any of us didn't feel terrible about it. Um, you know, it was, it was a very difficult situation. And now at Tufts, they don't do that anymore. They stopped fairly shortly afterwards, but I'm not aware that um, there may be some veterinary schools that they, um, that they, that they do um, still do that. I'm not sure. I tried to find out online, but you know, it's not like they, they advertise that. So it's possible it's still going on somewhere. I was so surprised because You go on to write, the message seemed clear. We need to be able to handle traumatic and ethically complex situations on our own without support. Learning to be stoic in the face of emotional stress was simply part of the curriculum, like taking exams or being sleep deprived on clinics. The day after an overnight hospital shift, if we couldn't handle veterinary school, the message seemed, how could we handle veterinary practice? Yeah, it wasn't even recognized as difficult. It wasn't even, it was like, this is part of the program. And I think, you know, you kind of hear a lot about from human medicine, there's this, you know, well, we did this, so you need to do it too. And, you know, sort of being on call and staying up late and being sleep deprived and those sorts of things there was, um, there had just started when I, when I was going through this program, there was an option where you could opt out, but there were, there were two things with that. One is that 
the professors did not recommend it. So they strongly, you know, sort of not, you know, suggested, they strongly recommended that we do the program um, because we needed to do this to learn, you know, before we graduated. So there were these strong influences from that. And the other thing was, if you did the alternative program, you had to give up a lot of your elective time, I want to say maybe even most of your elective time oh, wow. to do small animal surgery rotation. And I wanted to, uh, I wanted to go to Navajo Nation on my elective time, I wanted to do other things, I knew I wasn't, I didn't have a big interest in surgery. So it wasn't something I wanted to do. So giving up that elective time, um, you know, that would have been a big sacrifice. But I think, you know, the main thing that affected me was that they, they said, you know, you really should do this. And I thought, you know, I haven't, I, I didn't have experience as a veterinary technician or nurse. So I kind of listened to them. And, you know, now I think, you know, I didn't say, well, what about in human medicine? Does a human need to die for someone to become a surgeon? You know, they must yeah. learn other ways to, exactly. to do that. And to some extent, you know, when you graduate from veterinary school, you're expected to go in and start doing surgeries. You know, granted, you may have someone watching you, but you you were sort of expected to be pretty competent on day one. Whereas I think for human medicine doing surgery, you're probably not operating you know, right, right. right. <laughs> you probably do get a lot more, more training and certainly specialist surgeons do. Right. But in terms of, you know, you're out there spaying and neutering animals and suturing up wounds and doing other things. You know, you may be not doing some of the more challenging surgeries, but you're certainly doing, you know, routine stuff right away if you go into practice right from vet school. Well, it's really good that you kept those electives because, when you were working at the Navajo Clinic, you met Snowball, a Snow White Kitty, and you write that it was the first time you started to wonder about the mind-body connection. So tell us about this time, a little about Snowball and, and that mind-body connection. Yeah, so I was in my senior year, and uh, in the Navajo Nation, there was a, a big elective where people from all different veterinary schools would come. So it was an interesting way to meet it you know, students from different places. And we would all take care of the animals and watch different procedures, large animal, small animal. And this particular kitty needed her leg amputated. And I was just so amazed that on day three, this little cat was sort of started tooling around, um, basically after recovering from anesthesia. And it just made me think, wow, you know, it was my first experience because I hadn't, I'd been a receptionist in a clinic, but some people come to veterinary school and they've had, you know, many, many years potentially or a long time of experience at a vet clinic. And I was not one of those people. I was, I did reception, which was very fascinating in terms of dealing with people, but I, I hadn't seen an animal who'd had a leg amputated in terms of just after the surgery. So it made a huge impression on me. And I was so just deeply impressed by this cat and its ability to sort of, um, it, you know, its resilience really in terms of um, just sort of, okay, I'm eating and now I'm going to start tooling around and I got to just work on my balance a little bit. And I think that's all that was going on. And I just thought, wow, with a, with a, 
person, sure, you're, you know, they walk on four legs, you know, the cat and we walk on two, it's very different. But I think there's more to it than that. I think a lot of it is, oh, my goodness, how am I going to manage? What are people going to think of me? I have to, you know, how, how does this affect my identity? All these things that this cat was not dealing with. And I think that really helped in terms of its recovery. Yeah. You know, one of the things, too, that I thought was not surprising, unfortunately, is the sexism and looking very young. You know, yeah. you're 25 and, and you look apparently you read apparently I looked younger and you not only got not taken seriously by your coworkers, but your clients as well. When you were working for a practice, tell us how that felt for you emotionally and how you handled that. It was hard. Um, and especially, you know, at first your your confidence isn't maybe great to begin with. I mean, mine wasn't. And my class was mostly women, about 70% women. But then you start going out into practice and people are not used to that. They're used to having, at the time, they were used to having a male veterinarian. And this is in the 90s, right? Yes. Yeah, so I graduated in 1992. So now, you know, many people, if they've had a veterinarian, odds are they've had a female veterinarian or have experienced that if they've had more than one veterinarian. But at the time, um, you know, it was new a little bit to have a female veterinarian. And I did look young. I think a lot of veterinary um, veterinary students and veterinarians, you know, like we don't wear makeup. We're not trying to impress, you know, our <laughs> patients. So I think, I don't know. I don't know what it is. Being short also, um, you know, it's not like I was, you know, had stature. <laughs> so being um, small and young was, uh, you know, and then people, I, I could see this expression and it wasn't, certainly wasn't just men, it was women as well that would say, you know, they wouldn't say anything thing, but it would be, you know, sort of this look in their eyes, like, mm, you know, does she know what she's talking about? And then, you know, by the end of the appointment, I would sort of try to earn this expression that I thought would, would mean something like she seems to know what she's talking about. Um, and certainly for the first six months, I didn't know a lot about what I was talking about. And I would ask the other vets that I, that I worked with. Um, but it was definitely more challenging. And, and I think I was in about my third third or fourth year of practice where a woman came in. And so this was a practice that was owned by a 50 something year old man. And I was his first part-time associate. So these people really had not been used to coming in and seeing a female veterinarian. And this woman, I could hear her at the front desk and she was saying, I don't want to see a woman. I won't see a woman. She said, I don't go to a woman doctor. I don't go to a woman anything. She said, I don't want to see a woman. And the receptionist was basically saying, well, the other doctor's not here today, not here right now. So, you know, if you really want fluffy scene today, you're going to have to see, you know, so she had made the appointment, but I guess they hadn't told her it was going to be me. And she said something like, they... I don't want to see a woman because they they think they're better than me or something like that. Wow. So that was her reasoning. And um, and honestly, I don't remember if I ended up seeing her. I think I did because I think given that choice, well, you know, you can have your animal seen. Nice. So you know, it wasn't the most pleasant of, you know, situations for me. Well, but, she clearly um, had some issues. I mean, she came in with a lot of baggage, right, about women. It makes it sound like it's the 1940s or something. I know. <laughs> I'm not saying oh, no dame. Right, <laughs> right. She clearly had some issues. And, you know, there's a lot of people with issues that have pets. So. Yeah, sadly. 
Yeah, it's, you know, and we have to treat them, you know, we to treat the people that are wonderful and super nice and the people that are just sort of, you know, medium, thank you very much and whatever. And then there's a small percentage of clients that are maybe, um, you know, more difficult. And um, unfortunately, those are the ones that tend to stick in your in your head, you know, afterwards. So that um, that's difficult. But yeah, specifically in terms of sexism, um, I thought, wow, what what happened to her to make her so, you know, anti-female doctor, you know? Right. um, Yeah. So immediately my mind thinks she must have been like 95 or something, but was she just like a middle-aged woman or a younger woman? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think she, she wasn't, I think I would have remembered that. Um, it's funny because there was a, a, a quite elderly woman more recently who sort of uh, the practice where I've been for 20 years, I've been there part time because I was doing the house calls and now I'm writing. Um, but occasionally someone comes in and says, are you new? And I say, no, I'm just, you know, I'm only here two days a week. So, you know, maybe you haven't met me before. Um, but yeah, a woman came in and she sort of asked something, something about not just was I new, but was I you know, almost like a recent graduate or how old was I? And I had a mask on. So, you know, sure. <laughs> but I just started laughing and I was like, oh my goodness, it's been a long time since anybody asked me that. <laughs> you know, you went through some challenging times and, and there was times, unfortunately, that you doubted yourself and you had a cow emergency that really took a notch your self-esteem, but then you later realized it was an impossible situation. It was an impossible situation. And this was in my first few months of practice that the clinic I worked at had just a handful of local farms where the previous owner of the practice had done large animal medicine when there used to be more dairies in the area, which had been, you know, it was becoming more of a suburban area, less of a rural area. Um, But there was a farm and uh, there was a farm call and it was sort of decided I would go and do it. And this, um, cow had given birth and then the uterus which is supposed to remain inside the cow had prolapsed so the uterus was outside of the cow and i had been taught about this in veterinary school i had never handled one myself and i get to the farm and my coworkers at the clinic had so we've sort of gone over okay this is what you do um and it's interesting cuz you can apply sugar or salt to the uterus to help shrink it because, you know, it's inflamed, you know, it's this organ that is supposed to be inside. It's now outside. Odds are in getting outside externalized, it's been torn, it's inflamed, and you're trying to now push it back in this small opening, um, which is also up. (laughs) So the cow, and I've been told the cow has to be be sternal, which means lying down sort of um, on like, like lying on its stomach. Um, But the organ was completely externalized. It was all torn and inflamed. And it had been out obviously for like several hours, if not days. And um, I couldn't, it was probably weighed about 40 pounds and oh I put sugar on it and I'm trying to get it in and I just was getting nowhere. And it was even before cell phones, I had no one to call, no, you know, nothing, you know, I just tried and tried for hours. And then finally I had to say, you know, I, I just don't think this is going to happen. Um, and then the cow, I believe had to be sold for slaughter. So it was just devastating to me. 
And, uh, you know, and then later when I thought about it, it was like, okay, they sort of called me as a last ditch attempt, but the cow hadn't really been, you know, well, you know, not, not supervised, but the cow hadn't really been well, you know, they hadn't really cared very well for the cow to sort of call me at that late date where, you know, it was really impossible. Um, yeah. So, but that was, that was very hard for me. Did you have a thought of like, I'm not, I don't ever want to do this again, but I still want to be a veterinarian. Right. Well, initially I thought I might want to work with cows. And I think my big issue was being in New England. I I personally don't deal well with the cold. So the thought of being out in barns in January, my, I knew my hands wouldn't work. I don't really have great circulation. So that was one reason why I thought, you know, I, I didn't know if I'd be able to deal with large animal medicine in New England. Um, But that definitely was, (laughs) and the weather wasn't bad from what I remember. I was outside. I don't remember being, you know, particularly hot or cold or whatever. I was just more focused on the patient. It certainly wasn't January. You know, one of the things I want to go back to about veterinary school, uh, I thought this was really, really great. You talked about a course called the human animal bond and you write, quote, we considered it a fluff class. And you go on to say, as a practicing veterinarian, the little fluff class was becoming far more relevant than I could ever have imagined. The human-animal bond guides every decision my clients made about my patients, and it could pierce my soul with its simplicity and strength. That's so beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, and it really is so important. So when when I see an animal and a person you know, I'm treating the animal, but it's the person who's making all the decisions, who's giving me a lot of information and a lot of things, you know, a lot of their decisions might depend on their life experiences, their bond with the animal in terms of what that animal means to them um, and, and that kind of thing. So, I mean, it's really all about the human animal bond. And what happened too was with the large animal medicine, I thought I might even do international medicine, which is mostly large animal or, or I guess you'd say medium animal like goats and sheep. Um, but I really fell in love with the human animal bond. And I just loved t- taking care of dogs and cats and the people and their relationships and these little stories that they would say are these little kind of snippets of information about how, about what their animals meant to them, that I just really fell in love with that. You know, earlier in the interview, when you were talking about your opa and him going into people's homes, and he can kind of tell what was going on by the environment and how things changed. It must have been really interesting for you, because at, when you became a vet that goes to houses and makes house calls, you do get to see the way the animal lives, the way he's treated more. What was that like? And how different was that from practicing in a clinic? Just wonderful, because a lot of these little snippets of information, that the little stories that people would share, I would sort of get to see them firsthand. So, for instance, I this one woman had a dog I was treating with acupuncture, and it was an old golden retriever. And this woman lived alone with her beloved golden retriever. And I went there one day and she had sort of front steps and the front steps had been sort of, you know, they were almost unusable because there was this large ramp that had been built and sort of positioned to take up the stairs. And when I went in, she said, you know, I wanted to have the ramp put on by the side door, but they weren't able to do it. 
So she said, well, who needs a front door anyways? And I just love that because it was just all about the dog. You know, the dog needed a ramp. Meh, who needs a front door? Who cares what the house looks like or if people have to like squish sideways to go in the front door? It was really all about the dog. And I just loved that. Um, so it was just so neat to, to see how, what, what people would do in the extents they would go to. And some people might look at that situation and say, well, that woman was, you know, was nuts or something like that. But I just saw it of, as, you know, sort of evidence of their bond and her love for her dog and how important it was for her dog to be able to, you know, go in and out comfortably. Yeah, absolutely. And I also love reading about, uh, you and Lisa, she was a client and you went yes. to her home and you developed a friendship and she had called you about her cat, Mimi, who was having chronic renal failure. And the reason I love that story so much, not about the cat being sick, obviously, right? but I'm that type of person. Like if I connect with somebody, mm-hmm. I, I really like to be like, Hey, let's go have lunch or let's do this. And you know, I've had, you know, doctors or other professionals and I'm like, I can't ask my doctor out, but if I was at home and they're in my home, I right. can see how that, so talk to us about that. And if that, that sounds like a lovely thing and you're, you became such good friends. It's a different relationship. And she really became like, we became best friends. And I, I joked that the subtitle of the book could be the adventures of Karen and Lisa. Yes. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's, um, I, have had a lot of people sort of ask me to stay for dinner or whatever. And, you know, I've had people say, you know, feel free to stop by. Um, I've definitely met people that I thought, you know, I could be friends with, even if we didn't pursue, you know, sort of a, an out of, you know, professional relationship. I've definitely had people where it's like, oh, it's so nice to see them every year or whatever. And, you know, how are the kids? How's your family? How's how's everything going? So it's really, you know, I, I get to know people much better. But yeah, Lisa was definitely a special, uh, <laughs> a special case. Yeah, so. it's really nice. Once you have had a wonderful dog, a life without one is a life diminished. That's a quote by author Dean Coots, and I couldn't agree more. I want my wonderful dogs to live as long as possible, and what they eat plays a huge role in their health and longevity. Kibble is full of seed oils that wreak havoc on our dog's health. They damage their microbiome, which affects digestion, oral health, their skin and coat, and more. And that's why I feed my dog Benji Yemworth. Their air-dried food is GMO-free and has an inflammation-reducing recipe with omega-3 and coconut oil. It's all the benefits of fresh food without the fridge, carbs, fillers, seed oils, and other inflammatory ingredients you see in other brands. Yum Woof obsessively crafted a healthy, low-carb food with humanely raised USDA meat, eggs, and other non-GMO superfoods that my dog loves. Try the number one air-dried dog food for gut health for 50% off a trial of Yumwoof. That's 50% off a trial of Yumwoof. Go to www.yumwoof.com. That's www.yumwoof.com. You and your dog will be so glad you did. Does your family include a dog or a cat? Would you like to be better educated on how to advocate for their health naturally? then why not check out all of the amazing resources on naturallyhealthypets.com. Dr. Judy Morgan is a trusted advisor and a regular guest here on the Dog-Eared Podcast. 
She has over 38 years experience as an integrative veterinarian, acupuncturist, chiropractor, food therapist, author, speaker, podcast host, and owner of Dr. Judy Morgan's Naturally Healthy Pets. Dr. Judy's goal is to change the lives of pets by educating and empowering pet parents just like you in the use of natural healing therapies and minimizing the use of chemicals, vaccinations, and poor quality processed food. Head on over to naturallyhealthypets.com where you'll discover healthy product recommendations, comprehensive courses, the Naturally Healthy Pets podcast, informative blogs, upcoming events, and so much more. Again, that's naturallyhealthypets.com, the place to learn how to give your pet the vibrant life that they deserve. Now, I don't want to give too much away. That's why I'm not sharing a lot of stories because people have got to read the book. It's so incredible. One of the things, too, that you find is sometimes couples will have different stories about, oh, the dog hasn't eaten in three days. No, it's been a day, hon. Or, you know, he started throwing up a week ago. No, it was three weeks ago, you know, and you have to like be a detective. All the time. Yeah. If there, <laughs> if there's a couple, they are going to disagree. It's right. just like, like, you know, it's a shocker if they both agree. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's really funny. So you really, you're sort of taking them both. And these are two different caretakers that both yeah. clearly love the same animal and you're getting the different information. And, you know, I, I guess what you're taking from that too, is they're both very concerned, but for, oh my goodness, for people to agree, if they're, especially if they're stressed and their animal is sick, it's just, right. <laughs> I know. That's so funny. Well, sometimes I get embarrassed because, you know, I'll bring my, my lab Benji who's nine and has bad arthritis and he limps and I'll say, how long has he been limping? And I'll be like, I kind of feels like a couple months, but honestly, it kind of just, I'm so used to him just limping now right? that I kind of don't remember. And then I feel like a dummy and then I feel embarrassed. And no, have you no. had that with patients? It's very, very common. It's just difficult unless you have something that really did start all of a sudden. Okay, the dog was running and they took a tumble and that's when it started. Um, unless you have something like that, I think it's very difficult, especially for something like limping or vomiting or, you know, anything like like that. Um, and there may be an up and down. And so what I'll do often is encourage people to kind of keep track somehow. So we'll come up with a plan and we might say, okay, you know, now we're going to track, you know, we do, we especially do this with something like seizures, but even with other things, um, it's good to keep track. So especially if they have something like episodes, like seizures. So I'll say, you know, just before you go to bed at night, just write a little note on the, on your calendar or on a calendar or something like that, either whether they had an episode or um, what their symptoms were like on a scale of one to 10, just so that you can look back and see, has there been improvement? Because it's very hard when you live with someone, whether it's your animal or yourself, to notice improvement. So that's why, you know, I'll write in my notes, you know, okay, the dog was waking the person up you know, five times a night, and then they'll come in later and they'll say it's once or twice a night. And you think, well, that's a lot, 
But then you look back in your notes and say, oh, well, that's actually a, a big improvement. So we're on the right track. <laughs> you know, we're, we're actually Absolutely. what we're doing is helping, especially with acupuncture, because acupuncture is kind of, um, you know, a lot of times there aren't things you can measure. So I always look for things that you can measure in terms of like numbers of things or or something like that. Are they going upstairs you know, with the back legs, are they both on one step or are they able to go one leg, one step as they go up the stairs? So that's something you can sort of, you know, so just more objective than the subjective. So I'm a, a little off topic here, but it's still the same things. No, it's, it's really so hard. Helpful. Yeah, it's hard to sort of um, quantify, you know, these some of these more vague signs. And, you know, when did the limping start? Most of the time it is sort of a slow you know, thing. Um, but sometimes someone will say, you know, oh yeah, you know, and then last week when my daughter's dog was visiting and so I'll say, oh, you know, do they play rough? Oh yeah, they play really rough. And come to think of it, the limping started at the same time as the other dog, you know, visiting or with the daughter moved home with the new dog or whatever it is. Um, you know, so sometimes I'm trying to piece those things together and say, okay, it sounds like it started here. Um, but you, you can't always do that, but don't feel that because it is very, it's a very difficult thing, you know, to kind of think back when something started. Right. Well, this is such helpful information. You know, I'm glad you brought up acupuncture because the next thing I wanted to ask about was, do you ever have couples who maybe aren't on the same page with holistic therapies? Yes. Um, I would say probably the most common situation I run into that with is euthanasia, where you have a one person who's ready and thinks it's time. And you have another person, family member who thinks mm, I'm not ready yet, or I don't think it's time yet. Um, so that can be a very complicated situation. But yeah, with acupuncture, I think it, it depends. I think a lot of times, yeah. And sometimes it goes back to the person's history. Someone might say, well, I had acupuncture and it really helped me. And the other person's like, okay, whatever you decide. Um, I don't tend to see people kind of arguing about, you know, acupuncture as much. It might be just that the person who believes in it is the person who brings the dog. Um, wherever, if, where, whereas if the dog is quite sick, then you're more likely to have more family members there who might be arguing about when it began or how serious it is or whatever. Um, but with the euthanasia, that's a very difficult, very difficult thing. And I, I remember years ago being at someone's house and the woman was a vet tech and her husband or boyfriend just, and so I was there to euthanize the dog and the, the, husband or boyfriend was just, he didn't believe in it. Um, and I must've spent, I probably spent 45 minutes talking to him and just sort of trying from, from my perspective, it was a correct decision for this dog at this time. Um, and I could see that when I saw the dog and talked to the, the, the woman and, you know, after I talked to him for 45 minutes and sort of tried to, you know, where, where are you coming from that? You don't think this is the right thing. How can I, help you feel better about this decision because, um, you know, she wanted me to do it and it was really her dog, but I just didn't like the thought of him not feeling comfortable. Finally, after 45 minutes, he says, look, you better just do it because you're not going to convince me. Um, so, you know, I kind of felt bad about that, but I felt that I did all I could do. Yes. You know, Usually it's not that degree, but you have people that are, you know, when one person who thinks it's time is making the other person 
sometimes feel bad. And then, you know, I'm trying to assess out, well, you know, where are we on this spectrum of, you know, is it okay? Or is it, you know, is the animal really suffering? And I have to try to convince this person or is it, you know, it is okay. And it's just sort of, um, you know, either way is fine type of thing. So that that's probably the most difficult when you're looking at quality of life. Oh, I'm sure. Well, you you spoke about euthanasia, or you write about euthanasia in the book, and you write, quote, for myself, and I imagine most veterinarians, there will never be just another euthanasia. Each one entails being fully present as a sign of respect for life, for death, for the individual being, for the human family. I, I can't imagine how hard that must be. And I understand, too, that vets have a very high suicide rate. Right. Do you think that's a large part of it, the euthanasia, or do you think it's just the the stress of the job overall? What what do you think? I think it all adds up to it. And for a long time, I sort of, um, it was only really when I heard about the high suicide rate that I started thinking to myself, oh, okay, you know, other people feel this way. Um, And I sort of started admitting to myself that this is really difficult and that it does affect me. And I think I just was, I tried so hard to be stoic and I I was, I'm very stoic. And I think people kind of have a, you know, figured out many ways to deal with it. And some people just kind of shut down. Um, But to me, you know, when I'm doing a euthanasia, especially in front of a a family, um, you know, whether it's one person or sometimes it's, many people. Um, it's just, it's very intense. Um, I think that's the best word I have to describe it. It's an intense experience, even if it goes really well, which it usually does. Um, but I'm really trying to facilitate, and I, I'm so aware that this can be one of the hardest days of these this person or these people's lives, that I take that very seriously, that I'm facilitating this for them. And I really want to be there for them. But and also the animal is my patient. But, you know, sometimes it's like I'm kind of thinking more, you know, about the what I'm doing with the animal is pretty prescribed. Do you have somebody there? (laughs) It's Benji. Oh, oh, my gosh. Honey, you almost gave me a heart attack. Go on. (laughs) So it's just a very intense situation. And I think sometimes I feel very sort of tired or maybe drained afterwards. Um, and I, I think also the main thing I, I feel that that's important, and I don't know that every veterinarian feels this way, but I feel that it's cumulative. The longer I've done it, the more I've done it, the harder it is. And it's always a little easier for me if I don't know the people and I don't know the animal, if it's somebody that, um, you know, I've known the people for years and years, maybe decades now, and I've known the animal since it was a puppy and I knew their previous dog, then sometimes that's really, you know, that that's harder for me than if it's a complete stranger. And I think as I get older, there's more and more of those situations, which is wonderful. And that's why I love what I do is that I have these long-term relationships with my clients and my patients, but my patients don't live that long. So that's why it's very, you know, very, very sort of emotionally fraught. And I think that's one, that's my opinion. I mean, and, and some people say that euthanasias don't bother them, you know, um, but like I said, I just feel like it's it's very it's very intense. Yeah, and I would think especially doing it in someone's home, 
Would yes, and I don't do that anymore. I stopped doing house okay. calls after the pandemic. But yeah, doing it in someone's home is, um, you know, can be very intense. And I remember this one time, it was people I didn't know. And um, usually people would seem sort of pretty comfortable with me. They'd be crying. Sometimes they'd say sorry. And I'd say, oh, please, you know, don't worry at all. I mean, when it's my animal, I'm very upset and I don't feel bad about it. I don't expect you to be necessarily composed, you know, and uh, these people, um, I was bringing the animal with me to their vet who was not far away. So I was going to take this um, dog in the car with me. And I could tell the people sort of needed a little more time, but they didn't want they didn't really feel comfortable saying goodbye with me there. So I asked them if I could use their bathroom. And I didn't need to use the bathroom, but I just thought, I just had this sense that, you know, they, I was sort of impeding their, you know, kind of letting down and their ability to really say goodbye. So I just asked if I could use their bathroom and I just kind of hung out in their bathroom for a little bit and just tried to give them some time, you know, so that's what I mean by intensity. And I feel like I'm very in tune. And, And by that point, my patient was deceased, you know, so my sort of job was done, but I felt like you know, these people don't really feel comfortable with me. So I need to give them some time alone. And, you know, I put stuff in the car, but they needed a little more time. So that's what I did. And I felt like, well, that was, you know, that worked. That was all I could do. I just took my time in the bathroom. Yeah, I think that's really nice. And talk to us a little bit about, for example, if you have, let's say you have two dogs and Mm -hmm. one, you have to put one of your dogs down, having the other dog there. Yeah, sometimes it's good to have the other dog out of the room because if they're kind of sniffing or you or they're in the way or something, it's, you know, I really like to focus on that patient. You know, it's such an intense thing, especially if it's a big dog or if it's a dog that might be like its hackles are up, <laughs> then then I'm going to be a little anxious myself. So, you know, certainly if there's anything like that, then I'd prefer to have the other dog in another room. Otherwise, if the dog is just calm and just lying down, then it's fine. Um, if the dog is agitated in any way, I think it's better that they're in the other room. Um, but to have the dog come in afterwards and smell their their deceased housemate, I think is a good thing. Although, you know, people say sometimes, you know, it wasn't possible, the animal died at the clinic or whatever. Um, but I, I do believe that if the animal was sick at all beforehand, that those housemates knew. And I think that, you know, I don't know if it's their sense of smell or how the other animals acting or a combination, but I really think that they know. And so often people tell me, um, you know, oh, this dog that usually, you know, it could, you know, wants to try to play all the time, even though the old dog says, leave me alone, is now finally leaving the old dog alone or, or something like that. You know, they're, they're, the other animals in the home are changing their behavior towards the sick animal. And I hear that all the time. And I I really think they know they're just, they're, they're intuitive. And I think it also may be their sense of smell. I mean, they can detect cancer and they're very in tune to just little, little tiny changes. Yeah. You know, when you wrote about your dog, Trudy, you know, this is on the topic of guilt before and after making an euthanasia decision. And you write, quote, when I found myself in the land of self-doubt, guilt, and shame, I discovered a way to pull myself out. I reminded myself of the love I shared with my friend. Then I asked myself, would Trudy want me to feel this way? That's so helpful. Thank you. I just, I see that so often. And I ended up writing an essay that was just in the New York Times a few weeks ago 
about that topic, about the guilt, because I see that so often. And for some people, it's a temporary thing and they, they feel the guilt and then they, you know, they kind of move forward. But for some people, that kind of becomes their narrative about their, their, their relationship. I failed them. And I think we put so much pressure on ourselves um, that everything has to be perfect. And then I, I think many people feel, and I mean, I've felt the same way. You feel like, well, how could I, you know, it needed to be at the exact right time. And what I, what I wrote in Time Magazine is there's this thing called hindsight bias. So what that is, is when you look back at a situation, you look back with the information you have now and you're biased. And it's hard for you to put yourself in your previous shoes where you didn't have that information. And that's when you were making the decisions that you made. You had the best information you had at the time and you had your animal's best interested heart. But it's very easy when you look back and now you know what happened to think, oh, well, I should have made this decision. And, you know, it's it's people really beat themselves up. And I see that a lot. And it just kind of breaks my heart that people, people that remains their narrative. Right. Yeah. When we had to put our second dog down, Bobo, and I, and for people who haven't heard, you're just listening to the show. I didn't get my first two dogs, Bailey and Bobo, till I was an adult because my mom was afraid of dogs, much to my chagrin. Because all I ever wanted here, I didn't get my dogs till I was an adult. Oh my gosh. So Bobo, my very sweet shepherd, Irish German shepherd, Irish setter mix. I mean, this dog was gorgeous and so so sweet. I felt like we put him down a little too soon. My husband said better too soon than too late. He could barely walk. He was shitting all over himself. I mean, it was, it, but the problem is when the, the vet injected him, it, it took more than, and that happens, right? Sometimes. That absolutely does happen. Yeah. They just did it. And he's like, oh, and he's still like wagging his tail. And I'm like, oh God, we're the worst. Are we, what the, f-? like, we should just get out of here. But then I knew it'd, it'd probably be just another month and it, he would be in a lot of pain. And right. Yeah. Right. So hard. But I didn't be it, it wasn't a long lasting guilt. I think having my yeah. husband to balance right. me out. Yeah. Be like imagine if he ended up being in a lot of he was already in pain, but it would have been a lot worse. Right. Right. I knew someone they kept their dog way too long. I mean, that sounds awful. I don't mean to be judgy. And I, I'm not saying that in a non compassionate way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I was shocked that their vet didn't step in and be like, listen, maybe they did. I don't know. But it was the dog was really suffering. They they may well have because some people are kind of in denial um, right. where you have one person who feels one way, another person who feels another way. And yeah. Um, yeah. And, it, you know, that's the other thing, too. And I wrote about that, too, is that we can't make the decision unless it's our own animal. You know, we're advising. But um, and that that can be hard, too, because sometimes we do see animals that we really feel like. Um, yeah, that animal's not comfortable. Um, and, you know, we sort of do what we can, you know, okay, let's, let's talk about pain meds and other meds. Um, but, um, you know, and we can say, look, I think it's time, but the people will say, oh, no, you know, so sometimes so that that can be, that can be difficult. And it is hard, because a lot of the times, you know, unless you are doing a house call, you're really not seeing them at home. So, you know, when people say, you know, they're comfortable, they're still wagging their tail and they're still eating and they enjoy their favorite activities, um, you know, and I can look at them at the clinic and go, oh, my goodness, if you told me today was the day, I'd be fine with that, you know, but it's it's hard to know 
what's really going on at home or if they say that, you know, so every situation is really different. I think it's, it's not it's definitely not a one size fits all. And you did say it is common or maybe not common, but it happens where the dog needs more. To absolutely. Put them down. It happens right. when the dog needs more. Um, okay. Yeah, absolutely. And he was a big dog. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it goes out of the vein a little bit. Sometimes it takes a little longer if their circulation isn't good. Um, so those things can happen. And sometimes it's just that, you know, that particular animal, you know, we say didn't read the book, didn't read the textbook. They just take a little bit more. So that's totally within the realm of normal. And it doesn't mean anything in terms of, oh, this dog wasn't ready and it wasn't the right time. Doesn't mean that. Yeah. And I mean, Bailey made it easy for us. Our first dog, he was a border terrier pit bull mix. He looked like the dog from something about Mary. Oh Oh, my God. He was so spunky and fun. I loved him so much. And he was 13 and he never, I mean, we kept waiting. Like Bobo was slowing down, slowing down. He never slowed down. Mm. So I have a picture of running through the woods full speed. And then that night, my husband's calling him Bailey and Bailey was stubborn, you know, a terrier, very stubborn. And he wouldn't always come when called. And my husband's getting frustrated and he goes out and Bailey's lying on his side. He can't move. Wow. So we took him to the vet and they're like, everything, we think he had a stroke. Like you, you know, there's nothing you can do, but put him down. It's it's like he, he ran and ran and ran and ran. And then he just, there was nothing. So two days later, we put him down. And that was awful because there was no buildup. But then watching your dog decline is hard too. But I'd rather have the Bobo way where you have to make the choice, but you want rather than they're just, it was such a shock. It's such a shock. I think that's harder for the the family. You know, I think we'd probably all wish to sort of be healthy, 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 and then all of a sudden, you know, get sick and die. But um, but yeah, it's harder for the the family. And the the long, slow decline, I think, is a lot more common with most animals. And you do get some time to um, to grapple with it, but it can be a very, very difficult time as well. It's really hard. You know, of course, I'm not going to let you go until I ask about your beloved Rana. Oh, you know, everyone who listens to the show knows I'm obsessed with my pit bull blue. He is my soulmate dog. My husband's like, no, he's just your soulmate. (laughs) You can be honest. (laughs) When you, when, when you had to put her down, you wrote, I missed her constantly, violently. And I thought, oh my God, blue is still here. And yet I completely feel Mm -hmm. like I'm going to feel like that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And that's called anticipatory grief. I was trying to remember that the other day in an interview, I called it ahead of time grief. I like, I know, I know this isn't what it's called. Yeah. Anticipatory grief. And I think it's a really big thing for animal people, especially, you know, maybe not for your first animal because you haven't been through it before, but once you've been through it, I mean, and I've had people, you know, crying and, you know, I, I definitely feel it. I think in the veterinary field, you feel it maybe more because you see something at work and then you come home to your own animals and you think about it. But I, I see, I see so much of that. And um, that I think that's a really big, big thing. And it, it does, you know, kind of take away a little, I mean, it sort of makes us recognize how much we love them and hopefully we try to appreciate it, but I think it can get in the way. Um, you know, if it's, if it's that common and people are sort of really upset regularly about it, um, that's, that's a difficult thing, but yeah, it's hard. 
I would say maybe once a month, like I'll get teary eyed and my husband's like, honey, he's right here. And then I saw this, some kind of video on one of the social medias and this woman's crying and talking about, oh my God, I'm going to miss you so much. And the dogs in the back and you, like the bubble thing says like, but I'm right here, mom. Like, what, <laughs> what are you doing? So That's I try, awesome. yeah. I try, I try not That's, to do that. Right. Right. And it, awareness, I think is helpful. Just being aware that this is a normal, common thing. Um, and that, you know, but yeah, you don't want to dwell there. You want to, you know, maybe the best thing is just to then play with them, take them for a walk, you know, something like that so that you're spending time with them, just cuddle with them, whatever. Um, but yeah, Rana, that was, that was really difficult. And, and I remember, um, calling her and I didn't put this in the book, but I remember thinking of her and calling her the apple of my eye. (laughs) She was the apple of my eye. (laughs) I'm going to steal that if that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much in the book and you've been so helpful. I mean, just being a veterinarian and giving us this great advice, Karen, it really means a lot to me. And I know it'll mean a lot to my audience and congratulations, New York Times bestseller. It is well-deserved. And what was, that, what was that like? That must have been so exciting when you found out. It was incredible, actually, because the phone rang and it was a Wednesday at five o'clock. And I didn't know anything about the New York Times bestseller list, but apparently that's when it gets released. So the phone rang. It was my editor. I answered the phone and I hadn't talked to her since the book's release. So we, didn't, we don't talk on the phone very often. Right. But I thought, oh, she's just calling. And she's like... Karen, I have really good news. And I could hear all these things in the background. And then she told me, and then she said, oh, I'm getting all these buzzes and bells in the background because everyone is calling me and texting me. And she says, oh, that's my boss calling. And, you know, you could tell they're the whole, everyone was just, woo, woo, woo. You know, they were all <laughs> excited. Um, so it's a big win for the, for the publisher for that yes. to happen. So they were congratulating me, but they were, they were all celebrating. So that was a really neat thing. Well, I discovered you through an interview on Fresh Air and I was like, holy crap, if this woman's on Fresh Air, oh, I got to get this woman. And I was almost afraid you were going to say no. Like, well, who are you? Like I was on, I was on Fresh Air, but you were oh, so Oh my kind. goodness, no. And I love the name of your podcast, Dog Beard. I mean, that is just lovely. I came up with that. I was driving and I thought, what am I going to call this show? How do I get people to understand? It's about dogs and books. It's about books about dogs. Oh my gosh, dog-eared. And I was so excited. I came home from my husband and and my daughter who's 18. I didn't know if kids today know what dog-eared means, but she does. And I thought, well, that's pretty cool. Maybe other young people, you know, I don't know. I don't know what young people know these days. Well, Karen, was there anything that you were hoping to touch on that we didn't talk about? And you're always welcome. And I'd love to do like a regular segment and you can share some vet tips or dog tips or Maybe even, well, cat has to be a different show, but we'll, (laughs) we don't dislike cats here, but it is called dog weird. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. Yeah, I really enjoyed this. I I really enjoyed it. So I I really appreciate you having me on and I'd be happy to be on again. Yay. Well, tell us how we find you and your fantastic book. The Other Family Doctor, a veterinarian, explores what animals can teach us about love, life, and mortality. So you can find me on my website, which is KarenFineDVM.com, and it's K-A-R-E-N-F-I-N-E-D-V-M.com. And I also have a newsletter about once a month, and I have a couple of, um, my dog Sesame, I have Sesame Recommends on there about different books that he recommends, and I've started doing a patient of the month feature on my, my newsletter. You know, I'm always looking for books, so that sounds great. 
he's very photogenic and he loves having his picture taken. The other one is sort of nervous. She's kind of like, uh oh, what's going to happen? Uh, but Sesame's he's he's sort of a ham. So. Aww. Well, that is so good. Well, Karen, this was absolutely wonderful. And I really will talk. I'd love to have you back whenever you'd like. In the meantime, people can find me on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter at Lisa Davis MPH. You can see my current good boys, Benji and Blue, and my past good boys, Bobo and Bailey, and hear stories. And just keep coming back to Dog Ear. And while you're here, check out Health Power. I've been doing that show for 10 years, and they're on the same platform. Glad you're here. Keep coming back. Thanks so much.